1: My name is Richard Brown, and as always, it's a pleasure to have you join me again on the show today. Well, here we are. It's Monday evening. Well, you're probably not listening on a Monday evening, but it's Monday evening when I'm recording this, which is the deadline day for getting the recording across to my production team. And I was a bit stuck today because I didn't really know what I wanted to say and what I wanted to cover. And so what I did is I posed the questions to some members of my mastermind community um, who were working along, along with me. Um, throughout the throughout the course of the year in a sort of mutually supportive way. And I said, well, you know, what do you want to know, guys? <laughs> what uh, What's on your mind? What would you like to cover? So actually, the, the content today is very much driven by a few questions and poses from from that community. So I thought I'd share with you. Uh, they ask questions and I thought I'd just share off script you know, my answers to those. So the first question really comes from Anthony. It's all about numbers, numbers. Uh, and you know, he's struggling to get his head around it. He's, um, there's so many ways of looking at them, and uh, yeah, it, it never gets dull, really. So he, he wants to talk about working with, uh, with numbers. So here's the thing. We, we, have, we, had a, we have what's called a special interest group, uh, where we're looking at uh, you know, a special interest, and the special interest happens to be uh, buy-to-let, uh, BRR, and flip transactions. So it's single-let properties in the main. It's where people normally start, and we're having a conversation. And we're talking about doing the numbers and building out a spreadsheet, uh, which will help us analyse a deal. Now, that's a good thing to begin with. So have some way of analysing the deal. So I actually start, before we get to the spreadsheet, I always start with having some sound investment criteria. What is it you're looking for? Obviously, you need to know what strategy you're aiming at. uh, And then what makes a good deal from a bad deal, perhaps by area, perhaps by tenant profile, if it's rentals, perhaps, you know, a a good area that. uh, you can sell the property on a reasonable period of time if it's a flip. You basically build out a list of criteria, uh, investment criteria that is suitable for you. Uh, Some of this is what I call soft criteria, so it's things like the location, it's things like supply and demand, and some of it's hard, what I call hard criteria, so this is the number side of it. Uh, So you should have both on your, your list. In fact, I do, I actually have checklists um, if if you've bought a copy of my book and you've uh, got hold of the book bonuses you'll see there's uh, the checklists are available as a bonus if uh, if you just write in for that so a bit of a pointer there my book being the property investor toolkit so first of all have some investment criteria <clears throat> that investment criteria should obviously be aligned to the stresses you're following and it should uh, suit your own investment you know wishes what do you want essentially out of your property investment and what might be what I might consider to be acceptable might not be what you consider to be acceptable. So it's obviously from a personal perspective. You know, what is it you're after and uh, and, and really making it work that way. <clears throat> Excuse me. So that's step one, having investment criteria and have it written down as well. Um, last week, I talked about one of the books that I re- uh, read last year, which is Principles by Ray Dalio. And uh, he's very big into this idea of having rules, if you like, or principles and having them written down. So I suggest you start there. The second thing, of course, is to have some kind of model to be able to analyze a deal. A spreadsheet is a good thing to do because you can manipulate the data. So have a spreadsheet and make sure you capture everything. And if you're not sure, we've probably got some samples that you can have. I'm happily share those with you. Um, you know where to start and you know build your own. As Anthony himself mentioned on the call last week, uh, building your own spreadsheet sometimes gets you into the nuts and in the guts, if you like, of the uh, of the model yourself. So that's a good idea sometimes, but it's great to have something to begin with. And then you should query that, understand the formulas and understand, you know, what, what you should change, what you can't change, because it could ruin your whole model if, uh, if you overtype a formula, for example, and forget you've done it and then, oops, You've committed to a purchase, and you've uh, overwritten a formula with a hard number, and you know it just doesn't work anymore. So just be careful about that. So that's the principles. That's the spreadsheet. Then I have a, a couple of like uh, financial criteria. So uh, first of all, I have some return criteria. Lots of people talk about yields, gross yield. Gross yield is a, is a calculation. It's it's the gross annual rent as a percentage of the purchase price, or indeed the property value, depending on whether that's changed over time. Um, usually the uh, the the most recent is a, is the best one to go go with there. So, but I I think gross yield is a very crude measure. It's not the most it's not the most effective investment measure by any means. Uh, for a number of reasons. One is it doesn't take into account your costs. And two, it doesn't take into account your cash uh, utilization either. So, for me, it's very crude, not that useful, but it's a it's a guide. You know, it's something you can use perhaps to filter. And indeed, I do so. Um, I was going to talk about some of the rules I have. So I have one, one rule I call the 160 rule. So if you if you multiply the monthly rent by 160, in my world, that will produce a, a potential buy select property that is capable of delivering a 10% return on investment. It's a rule I've developed, it's just tested over time. Uh, it kind of translates to about an 8% gross yield as it happens. But you know, it's there and thereabouts. And that's just a really reckoning that you can do, um, or I tend to do. Obviously, you could flex the 160, depending on what kind of uh, return on investment you're actually looking for. So you need a bigger multiple for a bigger return and a smaller multiple for a, a lower le- a level of return. So that's just one example. Uh, similarly, I have a rule for flips. So when I'm looking at a flip transaction, I do a very crude analysis. What could I buy this property for? Times it by one hundred and forty percent, or one point four. Compare it to the local sale comparables for you know A one condition properties, and if um, if this property can can get into that sort of target space, or or indeed uh, sorry. Yeah, uh, uh, if it can get under that number, then it's uh, potentially worth looking at to, to see whether it's worth assessing in greater detail. So it's just a rule of thumb, really, and I've developed uh, there. So that's one for buy to let, it's one for flip as well. When I'm looking at development uh, types of deal, again, I do a very crude number. I've got some, some average costs um, you know, per square metre or per square foot to build out a property. It's usually in the £1,200 per square metre £120 per square foot. adding adding some um, other costs, normally 10% for professional fees, normally an allowance for uh, service provision or utility provision. And you get kind of a gross development cost when you add that to the land value or the property value. That's called the gross development cost. So if you multiply that by 1.2 or add 20% onto it, that will give you a minimum number, um, if you like, of uh, what the gross development value needs to be to make the project anywhere near viable. And once you know this is a general equation, you can work backwards as well. So if you know the gross development value uh, and you know your costs, then you can work it back to work out the maximum price you pay for the property. So it's just having some general rules of thumb that you can work with so I don't get out the spreadsheet for every single opportunity that crosses my desk. And believe you me, there's quite a lot. So it has some general rules, um, I do have some key metrics as well. So i mentioned return on investment, that's one I use. In fact, return on investment is a bit of a, <clears throat> a mis- it's a misused term. Um, in fact, the strict definition of return on investment is, uh, is not the same as the one we use in the property industry. The one we use in the property industry would be better known as return on capital employed or return on cash employed. But we use the term return on investment, that's stuck. It's not a strict definition, but if I say it's basically how much money you make as a profit, as a percentage of the actual cash you've invested into the transaction, that's what I mean by return on investment, return on capital employed here. So um, the good thing about that measure is it tells you how well your cash is working. And With property, we can use leverage or mortgages, which means we can use less cash. So um, it can be a more effective um, model for cash utilisation than some other forms of investing, just because of that simple fact. So return on investment is something I look at closely. Uh, The other one I look at closely, in particular with smaller properties, is is the monthly or actually the annual net cash flow. And when you're looking at cash flow, it's always, always put in all of your cost assumptions, even if they are not necessarily going to happen in year one. So in other words, make a provision for all costs and deductions, like letting agent fees, like your mortgage, like your insurance, etc. But also make a provision for void periods where the property might be vacant and indeed an allowance for maintenance. Now, the property may not be vacant and it may not need any maintenance or repair work if you're lucky, especially if it's uh, newly refurbished or it's a brand new property, for example. But make the provision anyway, because over the long term, uh, if you've got a long term buy and hold, on average, you're probably going to need roughly uh, 15, 20 percent, uh, that sort of range for those two numbers alone of the rent, that is. So always make a provision there, because in some time in the future, even if in the first few years you don't utilise that money, uh, you'll find that uh, you might utilise it later on, for example, with a large uh, upgrade or something like that. So that's the next thing. So have have some general criteria, have a spreadsheet to be able to crunch numbers, and then know what you're aiming at in terms of the the metrics or the return expectations. Um, The other thing to keep in mind is numbers are just part of the story or they help you tell the story. And this this was a discussion we had on the call. So um, there's other ways you can tell the story. You can show a property, you can have diagrams, you can, you know, know, there's lots of ways you can have video. words and and, and graphics etc so but uh, the numbers are in you know, this is an investment and so there's always numbers involved so numbers are part of a story but they're not the whole story and the other thing to keep in mind is different parties or different stakeholders as they're called might have an interest in the numbers in a slightly different way so we talked about the idea of a, a lender might not be so concerned about your actual annual insurance policy But they will be more concerned about the property value and the percentage against which they're lending and the return they're going to get on their money. So it's a completely different way of looking at the same proposition through their lens, if you like, as a stakeholder. So that's one one distinction. If you've got a a joint venture partner, they'll be looking at the profitability. They'll also be looking at the risks. They'll also be looking at your uh, capability to deliver on the project, for example. Um, if you are selling the property on to someone else, they may have different criteria, different measures. and They may not need all the detail, they might need the headlines certainly to begin with. So different people have different uh, lenses and they view the property through their own lens. So we need to understand what that lens looks like uh, to be able to present the information in the most compelling way. So we talked about having the spreadsheet to do the numbers and all the nuts and bolts, but maybe having a separate type of presentation pack. So. I guess that's the, uh, the, the sort of overview of the numbers, uh, Anthony. thanks for raising that question. Um, <clears throat> I hope you found that helpful. And the next question I wanted to cover comes from Dominic and he talked about, uh, his question was about investing abroad or investing from abroad. So this is distance investing and it's particularly distance investing uh, in, a, in a foreign land. So the key part of being in a foreign land is there are some clear distinctions from your home country, let's say. So um, first one is uh, legal differences. Um, Usually, if you're investing overseas, you're going to have a different legal system to your home country. So obviously, I invest a lot in the UK. I also invest a lot in the USA. Uh, by the way, the USA doesn't seem to be one country, it seems to be 50 <laughs> with the different states. So there are different uh, laws that prevail in different states in America. So don't forget that sometimes in certain countries that you can get local or regional differences as well. So you've got a different legal system. Sometimes you've got different currency, obviously. So you've got U.S. dollars, you've got euros, you've got pounds, etc. Um, so take that into consideration. You've got different business practices, uh, for example. Uh, again, mentioning the States and, and some parts of Europe, like Portugal, where I, where I also invest, you've got the a heavy use of notaries, notary publics, which is hard, hardly ever used in the UK. In fact, I was speaking to a notary recently, and she was saying that the number of notaries registered are reducing year on year because you know, there's just no real demand for it. But if you go to America, you can go into a bank and literally get someone to notarize your passport for $5.00. In the UK, I think last time I did it uh, for two documents, it cost me £160. Pounds. So uh, there's a distinction. Uh, I've also uh, done the same procedure in Brazil and it cost about, um, I think it was about £10, pounds, something like that. So the there's, a, there's local customs and practices that you need to consider as well. There's um, There's not just the legal side and the currency side, there's also the tax rules or the accounting rules give you a little example of that. So uh, invest in the USA, and somebody made me aware in the USA, for example, you can actually depreciate a property asset over 27 and a half years, you can't do that in the UK, I believe there's a similar provision in Australia as well. So um, you can get some distinctions in the tax treatment, sometimes that works in your favour, and sometimes that works against you. So uh, that's something to be aware of, what are the local tax laws and accounting rules that apply? and somewhat related again to money is banking rules. So um, if you if you open a bank account in the USA, for example, it's really difficult if you're not a resident, uh, a US resident, uh, it's quite painful. But just as a quick tip on that front, transfer wise, do a borderless account, borderless US dollar account, that'll get you through 90% of what you need to get through in terms of uh, banking arrangements in the USA. There'll be similar arrangements in other countries in Europe and in, in other countries as well. So the banking arrangements comes into play. And then you've got lending. Lending requirements differ as well. So uh, in the UK, it's a very mature um, market, as indeed the USA. So there is what I call a primary lending market and also a secondary lending market. Um, A primary lending market is usually, what I mean here in this context, is where you borrow money on an initial purchase basis. So think of a buy-to-let mortgage, you buy a property, you put a buy-to-let mortgage against that property. That's what I mean here by primary lending. Secondary lending is where you refinance or you remortgage a property. And, um, And so there's a secondary lending market. So, for example, one of my strategies is BRR. Uh, so I buy the property, I add value to it, and then I refinance that property at a later date to extract some of that value once I've tenanted it, and that makes it work really effectively for me. I can carry out this same strategy in the UK. I can carry out this same strategy in the USA, but lo and behold, I cannot carry out this same strategy in Brazil, for example, where I do have some property interests because there's no secondary financing market, or not a major one, and so it's uh, it's restrictive in that sense. Um, Brazil, keeping on the theme, has currency controls as well, particularly if you're a resident, so depending where you live and where you're wanting to invest, there may be currency restrictions. And then uh, a somewhat related point there could be tax treaties as well, which come into play. Uh, In other words, you're looking for a tax treaty. A tax treaty basically says, uh, we'll offset tax against one another so you won't pay tax in two locations. That's kind of what it means. But not all countries have what's called a tax treaty. So you could actually end up paying tax in both places. And even if there is a tax treaty, basically it means you'll end up paying the highest rates of tax wherever it may be. So if taxes, for example, if you're a UK resident investing in the USA, if taxes are higher in the USA and your investment is in the USA, you won't get a rebate when you come back to the UK. However, if it was the opposite way around and taxes were higher in the UK, you would pay more tax when you brought the money back to the UK. So tax treaties uh, also come into play. So we've got lending, we've got currency, we've got legal issues, we've got tax and accounting issues. Uh, we've got local customs as well that all come into play. I think that, you know, there's some then subtle things that branch out of that. So um, there was a big hoo-ha in the, in the, you know, a decade ago when a lot of people who bought in Spain found that they didn't actually own the land in which their property was built upon. And there's uh, claims against the land and people having homes taken away from them because there, there wasn't a clean title. Uh, I've seen the same issue in Brazil for that matter. I saw a really cheap property in a really nice area. I thought, I must have a look at that one. Uh, and I asked my uh, attorney to have a look into it. And he said, no, don't touch it with a buyer's poll. It hasn't got a clean title. So there's that too. In the USA, one distinction is that you have... So in the UK, you have, you have know a buyer and a seller will be represented by two separate solicitors. One represents the buyer, one represents the seller. In the USA, that isn't necessarily the case. You have one uh, title company who acts with both parties. That's a bit strange to get your head around to begin with, uh, but it's a local practice and it works pretty well. And uh, it, it's safe because you have this insurance-backed policy. Whereas in the UK, you have this more indemnity-backed policy, the, the solicitors backing you up saying, we've done a good job, sue us if not. Whereas in the States, it's basically, here's an insurance policy to say this has clean title. So distinctions in that sense. But I think uh, if you're investing overseas, it's all about doing your due diligence as everything always is. Uh, And especially so when you're investing in a foreign land, don't take anything for granted. And usually I'd recommend so you do your desktop research, uh, You find out as much as you can remotely try and go to the country, I'd say do go to the country, don't try and invest at arm's length without going. Um, People have done it, but it's very difficult. Try and have some local representation in various fields. Definitely have legal representation and choose your own legal representation. So uh, as far as possible, at least qualify them really hard. If you've been recommended to use somebody specifically for legal purposes, uh, same with accounting, anything to do with law, anything to do with money, um, you know, try and you know, do your own research and then try as far as possible to have your own representation. So there's a number of top tips just rattling off the top of my head. Um, I've probably got some articles uh, which back that up. But I just thought I'd uh, share that with you now. Um, The third question that I was asked is all about strategies and how best to decide what is the best best path to pick. And this comes from Matthew. So, for example, he's saying, how do you know if HMR, BRR, service accommodation, etc., is the right uh, strategy to take and uh, whether or not you should blend them or you should specialise in some way to either focus or or reduce risk. So that was Matthew's question in a sense. So here's my take on this. Strategy is the wrong place to begin. If you're interested in property, uh, many people who come and talk to me, I I had a conversation literally earlier on today, I was talking to an overseas person, so it's really quite contextual actually, uh, this person is a Chinese resident and they're living in Australia and they want to invest in the UK. So there's a lot of complexity already right? And uh, we're talking about some of these, uh, these points. But in terms of strategy, I said, well, do you know what you want to achieve? So, um, well, we want to invest in property. OK, that's actually not the right question or the right answer to the question I was really having in mind. So let me ask you a better question, which is ultimately in life, where are you heading? What do you want to, what do you want to achieve in life? So forget property for a moment. What do you want to achieve in life? And it turns out this particular person was looking to replace their income in a period of time because they're in a stressful environment. They could get shipped around the world and it was disruptive for their family. So they wanted a better quality of life. They wanted a more of a passive income stream through property or an alternative income stream through property. Um, in fact, it would need to be passive because of the overseas element, um, because they found that the returns were better in the UK than they were in China or indeed in Australia for them. So they were looking at overseas investment. They wanted to have an income replacement strategy, as I call it, and so that led us to talk about different strategies that might be relevant and appropriate for them. First thing is they're not they're not local, so whatever they do even needs to what needs to be extremely passive for them. So it even needs to be like a pretty straightforward investment that doesn't touch the sides. So I buy to let, perhaps a fairly new property, perhaps have a property manager or letting agents in place. That would be one example. But as I actually asked them what kind of goals do you have, and uh, they gave me a number in terms of income replacement, and what type of funding do you have to begin with, they told me the number of uh, uh, savings they have now or the money they could get hold of, and then in what sort of timeline I could then triangulate from that information that perhaps the passive by-to-let type of strategy wouldn't get them to where they wanted to go to. So we had a bit of a gap, you know, gap analysis as I call it. So you've got this much money to begin with, you want to achieve this much income in this period of time, it, it's not enough, basically, uh, to achieve your objective. So you've got a couple of choices. You lower your sights um, or you change your strategy accordingly. So the strategy element falls out of the direction you want to take in life, the goals that you want to achieve, the resources that you have available, not just money. Uh, it could be skills, knowledge, time, etc. Uh, that come into the mix. And um, and you put all, and the timeline in which you want to achieve it, and how active or passive you are, are prepared to be, and indeed your risk profile, and really just to add a bit more mix into the, into the pot here. Um, also, your skills, your preferences, your non-negotiables, your lifestyle choices. Um, when I'm talking to people about strategy, I have that conversation before we talk about any type of property investing, and so you you piece all this together and you design essentially. A, uh, a plan um, including a strategy for someone to follow which which can, you know brings all those components together. so I would say not not any two people are saying that's not quite true, but you know everyone is different and has differences uh, which are relevant and particular to them. so the strategy that people would follow is got has got to be designed according to them. I quote there's forty ways to uh, profit from property. I wrote an article on that for YPN magazine. Um, some time ago so if you'd like that just drop me online and I'd be more than happy to share that with you but um, you know if there's 40 ways to profit through property and some people claim there's a lot more than that I managed to get 40 without kind of heavily duplicating uh, the possibilities then obviously there's a lot of permutations Um, if you add in active versus passive uh, having money versus not having money uh, having some knowledge versus not having knowledge, uh, being good with people versus not being good with people, uh, etc. You can see how this could be quite a complex process. So, uh, for me though, it's very much a case of a de- what I call a designer strategy. Uh, so you you take the goals, you take the aspirations, you take the resources and the preferences, and you put all that into the melting pot, and uh, and then you you kind of build that uh, that out the strategy out from there. So. One thing you definitely don't do is just go for the flavor of the month, uh, go through whatever the gurus and the trainers are peddling at this point in time, because it might not be appropriate for you. And you could end up being a square peg in a round hole. And that that probably just makes you a little bit miserable uh, in life. Um, I've got one extra bonus question I probably wanted to throw in, um, if you'll stick with me another few minutes. And this comes from David. And, um, you know, we're asking the question, We were sort of extending the the conversation, if you like, around skin in the game. So, this was a particular conversation we're having the other day skin in the game, Uh, particularly if you're working with, let's say, a joint venture partner uh, who's providing, often the joint venture partner is providing money. Let's just put that on the table. So, that's the big thing a joint venture partner can bring if you're an active property investor or developer. So, Somebody brings money to the table and what do you bring? What's your skin in the game? Was a question that was posed and we're all kicking around uh, the answer to that. And um, so basically, if you think about a property transaction or property project or development, in, in, in essence, you've got a number of different components, haven't you? So um, you've got um, you've got the money side of it, but that's not all. So you've also got time. You've, you've got the money, you've got the time, you've got the contacts or your network, you've got your know-how, skills and knowledge, you've got your systems and your processes. Uh, they're the sort of uh, core five areas. And in fact, you can actually extend this. You could look at track record and reputation, which underpins know-how. You could look at the team that you have working for you, which is a subsection of contracts, uh, Sorry, contacts and network. You can de-risk a property investment because of the know-how you you have so that leads on to a benefit. You can have multiple exits because of the contacts you have, because of the uh, know-how that that you're able to deploy. You can sometimes provide secondary security, so for example, personal guarantees, alternative assets to secure against to uh, soften, if you like, or reduce the risk to, uh, let's say, a lender, if they're lending money rather than just taking a profit share. And, uh, and indeed, if you get more experience, you've got the opportunity to share your knowledge uh, and teach or train people as you go. So I don't know how many I've got to there. I think I've got to maybe about 10, <laughs> 10 different components. So the, the context of this particular question came from a private investor who was maybe looking to put some money into the deal. And from their perspective, it was money was the biggest thing. It was the most important thing and you know the biggest share, if you like, of the project. But I've just demonstrated that there's um, you know, around about 10 different components of which money is one. So it's 10% of the mix. Now, I'm not saying it's an equal weighting, because um, you can't do that project without the money. So it's kind of essential, it's an essential component. You probably can do the project without some of the other components, like a track record, for example. You probably can do a property project without having a track record. Uh, but you can't really do it without having some money, often. So um, money's an important consideration, but it's not the most important consideration. And other things can play a part too. So the time that you can put in, local knowledge that you have, um, contacts, um, the the know-how, the systems that you operate also play a part too. So the conversation I always have if someone asks me about skin in the game is along these lines. And then the question really is, well, do you value it, Mr. or Mrs. Private Investor? Do you value these other components? Perhaps you're earning, you know, good money in a business or uh, in employment, and you want to put it to good use, but you don't have the time, you don't have the contacts, you don't have the know-how, <laughs> how to do these projects. So um, actually, you're getting all of that benefit um, in return for some sort of financial reward, whether it's a fixed rate return or a profit share, for example. So I think when I took, when I, you know, have this conversation about skin in the game, you know, it's, it's important to translate, if you like, and explain to the partner you're talking to. That there's these components to the to the deal to the project, and they carry a value, and if that person can't see the value, well, that's okay. Um, probably you know they're in the wrong place. Maybe they should just invest their shares in some sort of deposit account arrangement, and you know it's money in, money out, and nobody needs to worry too much about it. But oftentimes with property, the returns can be better. You can use leverage as we talked about earlier. So it's a you know it's attractive to people to get involved in, but. Um, It isn't always the case that, you know, you have to bring 50% of the money together to have genuine skin in the game. Indeed, you don't have to bring any of the money because I I strongly believe that the other components I've been talking about have a value as well. So they were the things I I really wanted to um, talk about today. I just want to thank the guys who contributed these questions. Hopefully you found it handy. I guess it falls into the category of ask me anything or ask me something. And If you'd like some questions answering, uh, perhaps I'll do another session like this, maybe once in a blue moon, or maybe more frequently, uh, drop me a line. And I'll, I'd be happy to, to hear from you, and let's see if we can build them into, into the podcast in a future episode. So you can reach me, podcast propertyvoice.net. and indeed the show notes for today's show will also be over at the website, propertyvoice.net. And I guess just to wrap up, all that's left to say is thank you very much once again this week for listening.